Escape from Plan A. Okay, so hi everybody. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host, Diana, and today I'm joined by Jess. Hey, what's up? And Pix, and uh, you can, you know, introduce yourself. Hey guys, uh, Pix here. I'm extremely online on Twitter. I'm Totorimok. It's probably impossible to, to spell that out if you don't know what that is. It's a Korean acorn jelly. And I picked that name for myself because I am Korean and I'm also brown. I'm Korean and I'm Mexican and I'm queer and I'm very active uh, in social justice, climate justice, human rights. So I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Okay, so I think we all got together to talk about the LA riots. I mean, but the origin for that is uh, just processing what's been going on with the protests going on all over the country. A lot of people are trying to draw the parallels between what's going on now and what went down in 1992 in a really casual way that made me think that uh, people actually didn't understand 1992 all that well. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making the parallels that uh, I was seeing it's not just limited to like just say Asians. I see a lot of reporting and journalism just blithely refers back to 92 to draw some kind of facile surface level connection to what's going on right now. The larger context for people bringing up the LA riots comes from both the left and the right. Um, and I think it comes from this larger tendency of the white centered media always trying to drag Asians and Asian Americans into black white racial tensions and black white race issues. I just think that there's a larger pattern of the Asian community getting caught in the middle, so to speak. It's not just the left. I see the, um, I mean, you, you can't talk about this without mentioning the many rooftop Korean memes that are that started going around when the protests began and when we started seeing riots. Right away, you saw a lot of right-wing people and conservative people just sharing uh, the rooftop Korean memes, which are photos of Korean immigrants standing on the, the tops of their stores with guns, uh, ready to defend their stores from getting destroyed, uh, from people coming and trying to loot. They shared this with the message of, hey, it's time for this again, you know, just completely insensitive to the, you know, to what the actual historical context and the, the context of the, the events at all. These are white people sharing these memes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. White conservatives sharing pictures of rooftop Koreans. There's like one, it's mocked up like a cover of Grand Theft Auto, you know, like the video game. Yeah. It has rooftop Koreans and it's the art style of Grand Theft Auto. Some people co-opted to try to legitimize, you know, um, Second Amendment as cover. And mind you, like, I do believe in the Second Amendment, right? I grew up with guns. I know how to use them. I believe in a citizen's right to be armed here. I mean, and partly that's informed by the fact that in 1992, I was a child in Los Angeles and Korean. So like, we're, we're, really, we're going way back here. 
but what's happening with this co-option is it's non-Asians who are using this example of minorities who are, you know, exercising their right to bear arms against an aggressor and using that to be like, see, we're actually we're we're actually on the right side of history here. We're, we're this is pretty this is pretty woke, right? We're supporting the rights of these uh, of these colored people to have their guns. It's dragging out a traumatic event in history. It's still an extremely traumatic memory to both the Korean community and the black community in LA. And then it's just using it as a meme to like jack off about the second amendment, which to me is so insensitive for people who are mostly, mostly white. And I'm not going to say there's no Asians sharing this. There's like some very alt-right Asians who also share this. And I'm like, you guys are playing into the race baiting, honestly, that the white media has has been doing since the very beginning, um, since before the LA riots, but also the LA riots is a perfect example of how the white media painted this narrative. Yeah, so that's the second purpose for this new resurgence for the Roof Korean you know meme. We wouldn't be seeing this level of quote unquote support if the targets were not black. That's the important flip side to this, right? Like, so we talk about the roof Koreans, and everyone's like, "Yeah, fuck yeah," or whatever. It only gets that boost because of who the perceived opponent is. There's no mm-hmm. way that we'd be seeing this if the roof Koreans were arming up against white looters or something. That's a very important understanding here. Nobody will just come out and say that, but I mean, it's so that's why it falls to us to kind of read between the lines. And that's what's going on. It has nothing to do with you know your support for you know your right to defend your property or you know how you stand on gun rights. It's none of that. The, position right now in so the social conversation about you know these protests now and what happened in 92 that actually has nothing to do with it so falling for that is falling for the deflection right like if you want the counter example to that there was that time when this guy this Hmong guy in wisconsin shot a whole bunch of white people like nobody was saying people of color should have the right to bear arms too everyone was saying like save a deer kill a Hmong or something right yes it is 100% a deflection and i feel like the social media posts from certain asian american liberals and I have I have a perfect example of one I can pull up right now from a Korean American liberal on Twitter. Um, it says, "The murder of Latasha Harlins is traumatic for Black people, for Black women. We don't get to pretend like it didn't happen. An innocent Black teenage girl was murdered. If you're too uncomfortable to confront it, I don't care. Do it anyway. We don't get to fucking forget. Our solidarity begins." by remembering and acknowledging and taking accountability for actions like this. And the reason that these types of messages, and I see a lot of them in the wake of people bringing up the LA riots, and and to me, it feels like there's some legitimacy in the Asian American community as a whole to not be a neutral party in this movement, to also confront the racism and the colorism in our own communities, but also for us to be allies to the movement. There's some truth to that, but I feel like the way that this narrative is being painted even by Asian liberals is almost like a knee-jerk reaction to the framing that was put there in the first place by the white media and then later on by white alt-right social media posts that are framing this whole thing like Asians versus Blacks. 
I just think that that's the wrong framing. And thus, our response to that is going to also be in the wrong framing if we're only stuck in that lens. Yeah, so this comes to part of why we put together this group here to talk about this. Uh, What I've been noticing at this time around with social media and everything, people weighing in on these protests or about 92, almost especially the Asians here, the wrong Asians are speaking up and hogging way too much of the space. And what do I mean by wrong Asians? This is when we have to start talking about class distinctions here. I see a lot of Asians whose families never had to make their living in these areas and in these industries, mm-hmm. generally well-educated, very far away from the front lines of this friction, which is very real. And I hope we can actually talk about this and not just say we have to talk about this, which is another pet peeve of mine. Mm-hmm, me too. It's a lot of people whose interests are actually pretty antagonistic, whose class interests are antagonistic to the people who are actually working these front lines, saying the absolute most and saying the most harmful stuff about the situation, completely uninformed. Yes. And it's a very superficial uh, similarity, you know, skin color, that they're leveraging to have any legitimacy in this conversation at all. So as for me, you know, I, yes, I was in LA, I, I was Korean and it did but I grew up very far away from the nexus of this conflict. So the LA riots expand a huge area. Almost the entire county was swept up in it. I was very, very far away. I have no direct memory of it. My parents talked about it quite often. I have a memory of watching something on fire on TV and my parents freaking out, but like, I have no idea whether this is just a night, a memory that I created later uh, or if it's a real one. That's how distant it is. And again, like my family, they were academics, they were professionals, business owners, but very far away from this area, from Koreatown, from downtown Los Angeles. So that puts me at a remove from this. So I don't feel like I actually have that much legitimacy to weigh in and to see other people who are in a similar position decide to run their mouths on this really rubs me the wrong way, especially when it comes to like, uh, when they start running their mouths about what the solution is. And you can tell how little legitimacy they have in talking about this because they don't have any. It's very, it's always something very vague, like confront our anti-blackness and you guys better reflect on that. What does that mean though? What, What is involved in that? Yeah, they use very fancy academic language that has a certain valence to other people in the know, like talking about unpacking our anti-blackness. Okay, I dare you, walk into Koreatown, go into a convenience store, tell the store owner that they have to unpack their anti-blackness and come back to me and tell me what they say. Right. It's going to be a minute. Right. They're never going to do that. They're so removed from that uh, that level of class like that community, that that's literally never going to happen. It's also so introspective. Like, there's no action. If you were actually going to protest police brutality, you know, for like uh, the injustices done to your community, that would actually be a much better solution than even confronting anti-blackness within yourself because you would actually be fucking doing something to fucking disrupt the system that is oppressing blackness. Yeah. I just want to say my background real quick is that I grew up in a border town, just 30 minutes uh, north of Mexico. McAllen, Texas, pretty much where Trump's building his wall. And like most cities on the border, this city is majority Latino and Mexican, only 8% white. And that really 
shaped my experiences growing up. There was a a tiny Korean community down there, believe it or not. All of us went to the same church. There were less than 200 Koreans in this city, which is like a fraction of a percent. But because Korean immigrants congregate and tend to all do business in the same physical area, we were hyper visible. And that's, that's another reason why I take issues with the, there's a, there's another argument that I see Asian liberals making a lot, which is that maybe you're centering yourself because you as an Asian are resentful of the hyper visibility of the black communities. When you talk about your own issues, it's like, what, what are you talking about? We, we are hyper visible. Our issues are not. That's the difference. I feel like there's more to say on that, but. No, there is. If uh, Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to jump in. Uh, it's, it's great that you're talking about this uh, resentment at hypervisibility, because actually what I see here in the, it seems like a very aggressive response by other Asians to almost suppress discussion of the impact on Asians in these social conflicts. If I can just put my completely amateur psychologist hat on for a second, it almost seems like it's a panicked reaction to visibility. These are not kosher social issues that Asians are, quote, supposed to have. We have our box of acceptable social issues that we litigate periodically with representation, model minority. If we're getting really spicy, we talk about yellow peril, all of that. Talking about issues that confront the working class, and let's be very clear, we're talking about like Asian Black or Asian Latino conflicts. We are talking about mostly working class conflicts there's an embarrassment that bubbles up. So the re- instinct is to suppress that. And the best way to suppress that is to just shame, is to kind of force that conversation back under, under a layer of, well, you wanting to talk about that is actually a sign that you're trying to take up space in someone else's movement. You should reflect on your own privilege and go back under. Yeah, like now there's even people who are like going viral for saying like, you can't even say yellow peril supports black power. That's too much centering. centering You can't even say that Asians will support, you know, another cause. You just can't even fucking exist at all. Fuck you. Yeah. As a Korean girl, I have so much experience with being shamed into silence that I know I know how to tell when that's happening. And I refuse. Like, honestly, I refuse. I I will talk about my shit. The working, especially the working class, Asian Americans need as much of a voice as the elite Asian Americans that try to speak for everybody. We don't have the the volume or the resources. And honestly, the, the, the Asian immigrants who are just trying to make it, they don't know social media. They're not on there. Their voices are silent. I think that's the, another reason why I think this conversation is so important. So the majority of Asian Americans who who are here now can trace their ancestry back to immigration at post-1965. So there was a bifurcation in the classes of immigrant that that came to this country. One was a very highly educated elite that was part of an intentional brain drain of Asia to bring that intellectual labor to America. Um, at a time when America was on the rise and needed that talent and needed Asia to not have that talent. The other half is a working class immigrant pool that came to supplement existing labor pools. Um, I think that distinction gets lost in the in the shuffle. When in the rare occasions we do talk about immigration or Asian immigration, it's all considered one and the same. Plus that same wave brought us the Vietnamese boat people, refugees, 
So it's a broad cross-section of Asians that actually came over. My understanding is that the elite Asian, the quote elite Asian, the highly educated ones we brought over for uh, intellectual labor, uh, were actually a relatively small proportion that came to take up most space because, again, this is the durability of class privilege uh, that persists across mm -hmm. generations and gets amplified as such. So when we're talking about the historical events that led up to what we saw light up in 1992, is a lot of the working class Asians came over and started businesses in uh, in these big metropolitan areas. And this happened everywhere. So New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco had an existing, had a very strong existing Asian community that was bolstered post-1965. Texas, all the big metropolitan areas ha had this. So all of them were kind of breeding this, uh, this tension because they were not building businesses catering to the wealthy. They were not building businesses catering to the middle class. They were establishing businesses in working class and poor areas. That's where they could get insurance. That's where they could get uh, where rent was fairly cheap, where it was easy to stock, and of course the language and culture barriers that prevent access to to higher socioeconomic brackets. Right, and I think that the the K, the history of K Town in LA and in other cities kind of reflects that that the working class pattern that they settled in in or near. Black and Latino communities, and they tried to make a living there. And so they looked at what the needs were of that community, and they tried to cater to those needs. So they opened liquor stores, you know, video rental stores, beauty supply shops, and things like that. There's like a fact versus fiction in this narrative that I feel like it's unspoken. But I think that the, the narrative, the popular narrative is you know, Koreans coming in and exploiting this poor community, economically exploiting by building their businesses there and only caring about their money. But the fact is these were these were not rich people. They were struggling. They they were they were scraping together everything that they had that they brought over in order to build a, a little store and that became their entire livelihood. And in a lot of cases, they were only barely able to make ends meet, you know, with the money that they made from that store. So, you know, these were not uh, wealthy people exploiting the, the, the working class. These were the working class. Yeah. And like you think about why so many Korean people immigrated to the U.S. in the first place is because they had like a fucking 20 year economic depression after the Korean War. Mm -hmm. Right. Women in Korea were selling their hair to get by, to like not starve. Those are the people that are coming here, opening these stores. Yes. All right. And there's some, there's an argument there. And I think this ties into, you know, if we're actually trying to progress this conversation to an actual solution, then I think it's the history kind of reveals that for us here. Where were the black owned businesses then? Why were, why was this market so open and needed? It came to depend so much on these Korean business people in these areas. Well, I mean, that's that's embedded in the historical record. Post-1965, we're talking about several decades into redlining. LA had already suffered from riots barely 20 years prior, like throughout the 60s, the civil rights riots in the 1960s and throughout you know the 70s and 80s. So we're talking, you know, absolutely economically hollowed out communities. So this is why the rent was cheap. This is why land was cheap. This is why these communities were lacking for businesses that catered to them. 
So nothing just right. ever happens in a vacuum. These were all the chess pieces stacked up to create this, this situation here. Right. And not only was there not like certain businesses physically in that area, but there were like industries that just weren't present until like a Korean person decided to like create that market. Pix, you were talking about the beauty supply and the and wigs and hair extensions. There were not stores for that, which only catered to, you know, black women's hair. Um, it simply didn't exist before Korean store owners decided to specifically cater to that because they saw a need in in the community. But before that, it was just door-to-door sales salespeople, you know, knocking on people's doors and, and selling the individual hair products. But then when, you know, you saw a, a store, an entire store catering to that, you know, with like competitive prices, yeah, of course, of course the community is going to respond to that. And there was clearly a big market for that because it became a thing. You know, there was a there's a whole block of Korean-owned beauty supply stores in multiple metropolitan areas. Yeah. So a relatively small handful of really coordinated business owners, primarily out of Los Angeles, I believe, created that base network to expand this business model to all of the metropolitan cities. Um, I mean, it's a power of organization, honestly. It's always astonishing to understand just how powerful coordinating just a handful of individuals can be. And it just created this force multiplier that created a viable, profitable industry, basically. And then it spread to other areas that had the same demographics. And I want to tie it back to this perception of uh, economic exploitation and anti-Blackness because there were very real tensions and resentment between the, the Korean and the Black communities and the Latino communities during this time. It was a lot. It was not one-sided. And I think that people think that it's one-sided, which is it's ahistorical. Because you, you have to think about these communities being lower income areas, which you will see more crime. And there was a lot of shoplifting. There was a lot of theft. There was a lot of harassment. There were a lot of violence directed at the Korean immigrants. A lot of them didn't speak very good English and didn't really have the ability to navigate the legal system or the um, institutions to be able to help them or to protect them from this type of violence. So they, they suffered hate crimes, but for the most part, they didn't report them. And so it never really, you know, made its way into the, the popular narrative that there, there is this sort of tension against the Asians to the point that they get targeted. Are the police there to protect the Asians? No, like if you report it to the police, nothing's going to happen anyway. So like, why bother? Yeah. And so it is very much like they were on their own. There was really no safety net for these Korean shop owners. Like they would get uh, a lot of the time they would get harassed by their customers. They would not get treated well. Uh, the popular narrative, which is which is the, the reverse, is also, you know, is also true because there were resentment from a language barrier and major cultural differences. And I think that you know, these Korean immigrants coming in had a very hard time fitting in and really learning uh, the the pre-existing culture um, in South Central Los Angeles, you know. And so the perspective mm-hmm. is that, oh, these immigrants are coming in, they don't bother to learn our culture 
or our language, and they're just taking our money. That was the perspective. But there was just such a huge barrier of differences that, that really led to those tensions. And it, it's, it's a sad fact. But I just don't think that anybody should paint it from a, a completely one-dimensional perspective because this happens between immigrants and the local communities everywhere. This is not unique to specifically Korean immigrants and the Black community. Pretty much every Asian group of immigrants who comes in, especially a lower class, um, who doesn't have, you know, like the firm grasp of English there, and they're just trying to get by in any way they can. I'm going to draw back to my experience because um, I I'm I am the daughter of a Korean store owner that owned a store in a majority Latino uh, neighborhood in a majority Latino city. There was a lot of customers that um, would act really um, honestly, like very antagonistic, very hostile uh, towards my mother. And it would be over things like not issuing them a refund, you know, and a, a lot of small family owned businesses, there's no refunds uh, once you buy something. And especially with the things that we were selling, such as like formal wear, you know, once you buy it and you, you know, presumably you wear it, you, you can't bring it back and ask for your money back. Of course, these types of, you know, very common business interactions would be amplified, the conflicts would be amplified by the fact that, you know, my mother's a Korean lady with a Korean accent who tried her best to speak Spanish. All of our customers were Spanish, mostly Spanish speaking. And so if you wanted to do business in that area, you had to learn the language to some extent to be able to communicate enough in order to do business with them. And so, you know, her Spanish was not great, but she made an effort, but she would get harassed a lot by customers that were just like, um, you're just a, a Chinese or whatever, you know, like uh, get her country wrong, but you're, you're just trying to, you only care about your money. Um, the exact same types of perspectives that I see a lot from people talking about the Korean black tensions that preceded the LA riots, like the exact same kind of dynamic. I was for almost 10 years, the cashier in this store. I witnessed a lot of these interactions. It was like our day-to-day -day life. And I want to say that people who did not have this experience growing up, they kind of look at it from almost like a bird's eye view and they, they don't see it for like the real communities that they were. We didn't exist in a vacuum. We weren't exploiting, economically exploiting this community in any kind of nefarious way. Like we were a part of that community. We were in, we were in that community, the, you know, Mexican Americans and the, like the Mexicans that came into that area to do their shopping and things like that. They were our customers and they were also our employees. You know, we had a really good relationship with the employees that, that worked for us. There was a lot of camaraderie, and I, I can't say that this is going to be true for every store in that area. Like each one probably had its own relationships. But the dynamic with our store was mostly that it was, it was just a, a business. It was our livelihood. And we were catering to this market. Uh, and we tried to do the best for our customers. 
Um, and sure, there was occasional tensions when people would inevitably bring up my mom's race. But that wasn't for me, that was not the overall theme, you know, the overriding theme of our life there. It was just, it is what it is. It was part of um, how we, we earned money there and made a living for ourselves, just like every other store owner in that whole block was trying to make a living. And so this idea that, you know, the Korean community was being exploitative, it flattens one specific dimension of um, an economic relationship that really was put in place by white supremacy. You know, we, we, can't, we can't talk about this event because they're not going to let us talk about it without mentioning Latasha Harlan's. No, we should dig into that. No one is giving her the respect that she is owed here. Yeah. Yeah. She was a she was kind of basically a kid. She was she was the ninth in ninth grade. Yeah, fifteen years old. And she was shot. She was shot by a Korean store owner who thought she was shoplifting and acted in a very like a rational way. And I feel like this was an ugly bubbling up of, of all of the, the frustration that the, the Korean uh, store owners had of feeling like they were kind of stuck between a, a rock and a hard place. They continually had to, to deal with doing business there where they, they would get robbed. They would get stolen from a lot. And um, it's an un- uncomfortable fact that by no means... Um, is the appropriate response to shoot and kill somebody at all. But they were facing a lot of shoplifting. It wasn't like they're running a Target. Their store is not a multi-million dollar uh, corporate storefront. It was a literally the only thing they had to pay the bills. And so there was like a, this sense of de- desperation and it just culminated in this ugly event that the store owner, Uldegan, came out of the store after her and, and killed her. It happened so fast. I just watched this video. It was part of LA-92. They showed the actual footage and it, it happened like within a few seconds. They were interacting and then the store owner grabbed Latasha's shirt and then Latasha punched her in the face she walked away and then immediately the store owner just whips out a gun and shoots her in the back of the head and she just goes down right away like she didn't even have time to leave the store oh my god yeah it was it was over in a handful of seconds the entire confrontation so so latasha was there to buy some orange juice she went to the counter they get into a scuffle it's completely insane Yeah, so this happened in 1991, and then that caused a huge outcry in the community. Um, When it went to trial, she got an absolutely ludicrous sentence, not even a slap on the wrist. It was something like probation with credit for time served and like some counseling or something. And that's it. That was it. The jury recommended 16 years in prison, and the judge was like- Yeah, that was- that was like the minimum recommended sentence for murder at that level. The judge, who was a white woman, um, she, hilariously, she starts leaning on being Jewish later on. Basically, uh, at the sentencing, just says, this woman is not a danger to society. I don't believe her to be a threat. She's already been punished enough. So, there you go. 
like it's it's just a, all around a really really sorry you know situation. First, we have you know the tensions, which you do not justify murder. I'm just going to say that, and we have this store owner who um, I don't know anything about Soon Daju. I don't know her backstory. I just know she was a uh, one one storekeeper in uh, K Town that did this uh, murder, and she wasn't convicted of murder like she probably should have been. She definitely should have been, but instead she got convicted of manslaughter. Mm-hmm. That's not manslaughter. That's definitely murder. Nobody mentions this, but the fact that the person who shot and killed uh, Latasha Harlins was you know, a Korean store owner and not like a white store owner or, you know, a black store owner. Like, like this happened specifically with a Korean store owner. And because of the fact that it was a Korean store owner, it just became permanently engraved in this narrative of, well, Koreans hate black people. How many, you know, how many killings of black people have we seen by the police which was the, the, the seed that first led to the riots. Not this. This became kind of almost like the new front-facing narrative and not the fact that four officers brutally beat Rodney King, you know, in a pattern of a long-standing pattern of, you know, white policemen beating up and killing black people for many, many years. Um, but as soon as a Korean store owner shoots and kills a, a black teenager, that becomes a new uh, narrative for the riots. Not police brutality, but Koreans versus black people. And that is 100% yeah. intentional on the part of the white media that you know did not cover the mass destruction and burning of Koreatown. They did not cover the fact that the police and the, the National Guard uh, came to defend uh, every single community, including the the Japanese uh, American town, their stores got protected. Only the Korean store owners' uh, businesses were were basically abandoned by the police. It was almost like funneling all of the violence and destruction directly towards that community. Uh, one of the the storekeepers' kids who um, was trying to basically call the, call the cops and call the fire department to come help them. Basically, the, the response he got from the police department was, I hope you guys have insurance. They were effectively abandoned, and they made, they made it very clear that they didn't care about the Korean community. They had made their decision that they were going to be basically the sacrificial lamb where all of this anger, all of this this rage, this very justified rage about the abuse of the Black community, it's all going to get taken out on the Korean community and their businesses. You know how a lot of the looting was instigated by like police dressed up as protesters? Or not even dressed up as protesters, but they just like were all black, hit their faces and started like oh, yeah. bashing storefronts in, you know, in this series of protests. Like, did that happen in 92? Because I just feel like that shit must have happened then, too. It's just that nobody, not every single person had a camera on their phone to be able to detect that stuff. 
I don't think that's a, a critical thread in the 92 riots. So just pulling back a little bit. So we just talked about Latasha Harlan's murder and the travesty of the Sunjadu sentencing. Uh, namely, there wasn't one. This happened in 1991. The second trigger to the riots in 92 is, of course, Rodney King, the Rodney King beatings. In case anyone is not aware, I'm sure people have heard the name Rodney King at some point and know that there was a mass social uprising in his name. So um, Rodney King is a was a black man who was, uh, who was severely beaten by several police officers in LA. And this was a major deal because, and it kind of presages what's going on now because it made a big deal because someone was able to record it. And of course, this is the 90s. So this was a big deal. Someone across the street happened to have a home camera and saw some shit going down in the street outside. It is camera there. And that's the rest of that is history. So several officers are seen just absolutely savaging Rodney King. And there's records of his injuries. He was tased so hard that his skin was charred on the surface, just charred his eye basically just burst, his cheekbones were smashed in, massive injuries. And it came to national consciousness because of this tape. Um, so probably because of this tape, this is one of the few instances where police brutality was actually prosecuted and it, it went to trial. So the riot started April 29th. So the major trigger for that is the trial of those uh, those police officers. And that was, again, a travesty. There was so much shit that went down with that trial, too. They moved it from L.A. to Simi Valley, which is basically where all the cops live. So it's a very white, very conservative area. You know, there's obvious manipulation to get a better jury. It was like 11 white people to one black person to sit on a trial. It was 10 white yeah. people, uh, one oh, Latino, yeah. and one Asian. Right. Yeah, there were no black people in the jury. Yeah. And that sentencing went sideways too. They were just, they were not even given a slap on the wrist. They just basically got to walk. No, they were acquitted. They were acquitted. They were yeah. acquitted of all charges. all charges. So they didn't, yeah, they did not get any, they were not punished at all for shit that we could see on the TV. No one disputed that. And this was, this was right in everyone's faces. And they just, they got to walk. That was the second trigger for, for the Rodney King riots. The violence basically started immediately. That same day. Yeah. The first fire started burning in South Central and spread from there. So, uh, so Diana, when you're, ta- when you're asking about, um, like, you know, who might have been instigating this, I feel like that, uh, that actually kind of detracts from this legit- the legitimacy of this, uh, of this anger here. There's just no record of it. So it's hard to say um, whether that happened or not. It just doesn't seem like this was a this was planned in quite the same way. It, I don't see a parallel to what we're seeing right now, in other words, in quite the same way. Okay. The fallout from that event was so huge, you know, and I think that a lot of the interviews that that we've seen from the Korean business owners who were actually there, who actually had their businesses completely leveled and destroyed by this, I think they were very aware of what was really happening. They didn't see this as the the black communities coming in and attacking us. I don't I don't I don't believe that their narrative was so simple. They they knew that the police had abandoned the Korean community in that time. They knew that the white media only wanted to focus on a race baiting narrative of, you know, the the store owner killing Latasha Harlins, and then during the riots, the store owners defending themselves 
the media was actually covering that in an extremely critical way. Like, oh, look at these Korean people killing black people, uh, shooting these people. That's how it was covered. So the Rodney King riots that spanned a period of about five days, so roughly about a week, um, starting on April 29th, we don't actually hear a lot about the huge impact this actually had on black neighborhoods, brown neighborhoods. Most of the reporting hyper-focuses on the visibility of the black Asian, black Korean conflict. Yes. Without a discussion of the flip side to this. So the final tally for these riots, over $1 trillion of damage incurred over a period of about five days. Uh, and this is an astonishing statistic, about 60 to perhaps 70% of that. And the, these riots spanned the entire county. There was no, there was no p- corner of, of LA that was left untouched. Uh, if you look at the map of, you know, fatalities and injuries, you'll see it spread across a huge geographic area. And the final tally is over $1 trillion. It's a huge amount of money. Nobody wants to talk about how Koreatown, an area of three square miles, suffered 60 to 70% of that damage. Nobody talks about that. Yeah. There was outrage from that too. They, The Korean community immobilized after that, demanding reparations from the government because they realized like, you fucked us. You know, you, you left us out to die, essentially. This is not okay. This is not just. And they marched and demonstrated. They didn't demand it from any of the black people. They demanded it from the government. Right. Because they blamed the white system, which was responsible. They, they did not blame black people for this. They, they saw this was the, the white centric system that led to this conflict and destruction and then left the Korean community out to dry. My parents were pretty active post-riots. They both have PhDs. They're both academics. They both both leveraged their position as as, uh, embedded in the system to advocate for the community. It was never saying, you should have come protected us by like killing Black people or killing the looters. It was never that. It's simply, we needed your help to deter violence. We needed your help to maintain peace to the extent possible. I mean, it was devastating how the riots actually leveled Black communities too, some of which have still not yet been able to recover from the damages incurred in 92. You know, there's probably a very hidden story there about, you know, outside instigation, uh, outside interests that came in to torch those neighborhoods. It it doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you burn down your own homes, your own neighborhoods, your own businesses? Uh, there was a huge impact to those neighborhoods too. And there just was no, there was no ability to bring any of this into any kind of order. Yeah. It's a tale as old as time about the that kind of divide and conquer strategy of white supremacy, you know, the government and the media, um, the institutions to essentially drive wedges between minority communities and keep them focused on each other rather than on the system that's putting everybody in in these positions. There's a bit of um, sensationalism in the narrative around the 92 riots. I have a question for you too. I know you guys have done the research on this, so but this is just a sample of like the questions I've been asking people I knew, a lot of whom are a similar age, people in their 30s, professionals, Asian, many of whom grew up in uh, Los Angeles. I just asked them um, a week or two ago about this, and the answers were really surprising. So question number one, how many people do you think died 
in the 92 riots. Well, I know there was one direct casualty as a result of, of the riots, like on the, on the Korean side. Mm-hmm. He was not actually shot by Black or Hispanic looters. Right. That's a, it was a very sad story. It was a very sad story. He was accidentally shot by uh, actually a couple of store owners who thought that he was a looter. Mm-hmm. And it was a very uh, big funeral. It was like a really, really traumatic event. I think it was a wake-up call for that community that it can't continue like this. Right. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just say it. About 60 people died during the riots. And I was surprised that people seemed to think that the count was actually many times higher than that. And I have to believe that's part of this is the is the history making, the narrative making that happened post riots that almost I think it made it seem like it was much more deadly than it actually turned out to be. I think that is anti blackness. There's an assumption of extreme like violence and maliciousness whenever uh, black people do anything exist, you know? So it's like if they're actually rioting, people just assume it's like so much more deadly than what it actually is. Yeah, that's part of and that this isn't to disrespect the lives that were lost during those riots. I mean, those that is that's always a tragedy. The only thing I'm I'm questioning now is how this impression is now embedded in a whole ge- new generation of of adults who are who are now bearing witness to this current moment who think that the 92 riots which to this day I think is uh, considered the biggest incidence of civil unrest in American history. I'm not sure if that's normalized to population size at all or anything, but just in terms of sheer number of people involved and the amount of property damage incurred, it's the biggest incidence of civil unrest in America. And it just needed it needed this body count to justify this impression that this was some war that was being fought on American soil that was instigated by this race riot that turned into a race war, in other words. Yeah, that needs to be understood uh, for what it actually is. And none of it is actually, none of it's hidden or anything. It's just, I mean, I just found this by going to the Los Angeles Times that has a, that has a database on this stuff, you know. And when I say 60, some of those casualties are things like people who died while waiting for an ambulance or for, uh, like elderly or sick people who were not able to get emergency care because of the disruption in services over the period of those five days of the riots. People who actually died in conflict, in actual active violent conflict, is significantly lower, actually. And this is casualties, of course. The number of injuries is about 2,000, which, uh, and I, I have no sense of how they broke that down, whether these were serious injuries like gunshot wounds. I don't know how they tabulated that, kept track of it, um, or its legitimacy. I'm just going by, you know, what we actually know or, you know, fatalities. And the data on fatalities does not support this narrative that this was some race war that was being fought. It just doesn't. Secondly, this is where I see this is where I see this uh, this narrative creation at its insidious best. How many people do you think died in Koreatown? I mean, it was just that one guy, right? That was the eighteen-year-old guy who was accidentally shot by shopkeepers who were protecting their shop. He came in, and they yeah, the accident they shot him. So the answer is about five people, depending on creative, like I I was kind of just kind of like roughly generously estimating Koreatown 
Uh, so in that particular, you know, three square mile location, five people died in Koreatown. Uh, one was the 18-year-old kid who was, it's it's such a sad story. The, the story there is for those five days, a small Korean radio, Korean language radio station, Radio Korea, served as this de facto like headquarters for mobilization and organization for the commu- Korean community. Uh, since there was no institutional aid from, you know, actual, uh, from like law enforcement or anyone in charge, basically, people were so desperate. I mean, again, this is the, this is the early 90s. This is before social media. This is before all of that. Just everyone had the instinct to call into the radio station. So these poor like radio operators were normally like small time journalists, you know, classical music curators, pastors, you know, <laughs> these people who were just running a small radio station just for Korean language speakers um, suddenly became like mobilizers for the entire community. So what they would do is uh, like a store, a store owner would call in and say, I'm starting to see a lot more people coming in. I'm a little worried. I'm all alone. I'm really worried about my store. And they, if they had people, they would like send the people out to provide some backup, like help board up the shop. Or, you know, if, if worst comes to worst, actually like try to provide some manpower to prevent looting or violence, things like that. Uh, so this was one of those situations. A store owner called in saying they were really worried that something was about to go down. So they sent this kid and a few others over. And when they got close, the store owner panicked. It was dark. They were dark. It was dark. Everyone was in a panic. He fired and hit this kid. I mean, it was, it's such a sad story. That sounds like what happened in the movie Gook. Oh, yeah. 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 Not to give it away, but yeah, that I think it's a direct. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I just ruined. It. <laughs> it's it's still it's a great movie, but um, it's definitely it, I think it is a direct callback to that moment in history, reworked through the filmmaker's own personal experience. But yeah, so five people died in Koreatown. One was the Korean kid. I wish I could remember his name. I feel like I'm disrespecting him that I, that his name slips my mind at the moment. I'm sure I'll remember it. Um, three were white and one was Hispanic. No data on the number of injuries incurred within Koreatown, but just going off of the number of fatalities again, this again does not justify the mythos around the roof Koreans. No. It really doesn't. No. It doesn't support the mythos of the roof Koreans either from uh, from a liberal perspective or a conservative perspective. So from the conservative perspective, no, no, sorry, the roof Koreans are not your little yellow allies in your fight against black people. Sorry to break it to you. This is not what's going on. So you should, you know, stop, just cut that shit out. They were fucking terrified. Uh, these were right. people who had saved everything and they were watching their, essentially their life savings burn down before their eyes. And it was life or death. We're going to end up on the streets with nothing and lose everything we came to this country um, and, and built up over, over several, several years. This is our only other option. Yeah, one woman right. said that she finally, like, after 20 years, finally paid off the mortgage for the store. You know, she was going to finally buy an apartment for her and her daughter to live in. She was like, okay, no, we're, we're going to, we, we have the final payment in May. We're going to wait until that's paid off and then we're going to do this thing. And then the store burned down in April, at the end of April. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's the story of the roof Koreans um, in particular. I want people to actually understand what this situation was. It's not one that serves any of the narratives that I'm seeing now. It doesn't support any of that bullshit. If you're some white two-way nut who wants a little cover for your own anti-blackness and you find some pictures of Koreans smiling and holding guns, this doesn't mean we're going to join hands with you in your fucking race war. That's not what this is. You guys are the enemy too. Uh, like, let's not get this wrong here. Okay. On the liberal side, the narrative of the roof Koreans as virulently anti-black celebrating this violence and just eager to and you know guilty of unleashing violence against black people in the 92 riots that narrative is also not served by this and we know it just by the numbers i'm not distorting anything if anybody has any historical evidence to the contrary i would be very happy to see that but just going off of okay a the narrative of the roof koreans that we're voracious greedy exploiters right of black wealth that we're just here to exploit and have no have no community. We're not here to assimilate. We're not here to give back or uh, integrate into a community. We're just here to extract. Okay, well, like I said, the total property damage in LA, and LA is a huge, covers a huge amount of territory, is over $1 trillion. And as I said earlier, about 60% of that is concentrated in just three square miles. This is an absolute leveling of Koreatown. Considering the level of devastation that that implies, that that is, that that represents, and the fact that there weren't a lot of fatalities to come out of that proportionate to the amount of property damage. I don't think this narrative is supported that we were willing to just basically unleash a genocidal race war on behalf of property. How many roof Koreans do you think there actually were per store or per capita of Korean immigrant there? This goes back a little bit into history. So Korea has mandatory enlistment for for adult men, right? So around age 18, I think, uh, you spend two years in the military, mandatory service. Uh, a lot of countries have this. So when we see, when we talk about 92, we are talking about men who are probably in their 30s to 50s, more or less, uh, mainly immigrants. Um, so men who have had military experience and training. Anecdotally, uh, like I said, I grew up comfortable around guns. Uh, that's just the fact that my dad was in the military. He learned to be comfortable around guns. Uh, when he came to America, he was like, yeah, fucking, I'm not comfortable with just, you know, white people having guns. <laughs> this is, this is not going to happen on my watch. Uh, so as a matter of self-defense, we've gone hunting. It was it was a part of the culture. Uh, like I grew up in a primarily like Chinese American enclave. It seemed fairly normal to see gun ownership in that community too. So when we're talking about the business owners of Koreatown, I would say that a significant proportion of those store owners would have had access, familiarity, and training with uh, firearms. Mm-hmm. How many of them actually were, you know, the quote, roof Koreans? Uh, I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. We see a lot of the same pictures over and over. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, there's probably like five people, you know, actually on a roof. And like, they're just conspicuous and the media just circulated those same fucking pictures. 
I mean, the the, co- the news coverage that was happening there, the anchors were talking about them like, oh, this guy reminds me of the, the tower shooter. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, these guys are wackos with guns. They're just taking pot shots. Like, that's the way that the news anchors described these business owners. They were race baiting like, like crazy. Yeah. I think the roof Koreans occupy the same space for the 92 riots as the coverage of Antifa does now, Mm -hmm. where it's almost a projection of, you know, the inner fears. Like we hear about how people talk about Antifa vis-a-vis the protests now. It's almost this projected space where they're using it as a boogeyman to discuss their own anxieties about this, that this will descend into mass chaos, into mass violence, that this will disintegrate into an all-out race war, when the actual fact of the matter is this is not a significant presence. And the more space and airtime is given to parsing the role that Antifa is playing in this actually just serves to distract from the overall picture. And I think that's exactly what the Roof Koreans represent to 92 here. The more we focus on that, the less we actually understand about the entire picture at large. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like the role of Asians in every single issue that the U.S. has is like just a projection of white anxieties and white guilt. Yeah. I mean, you see it whenever it's some completely unrelated conversation. Somebody always drags China into the conversation. They mention China. They have to mention China. There was a story of, you know, a bunch of white activists, I guess, like just white, white guilt um, kind of bowing down before a group of black people. I don't know the context of this. I don't remember when it happened. It was recently, but the video was circulating everywhere of, oh, look at all of these, you know, white tears and a bunch of white people thinking that they can apologize for slavery and for racism by repeatedly prostrating themselves in a very cringy way in front of uh, a group of black people and saying repeatedly, we're sorry, we're so sorry. There's There's been multiple um, instances of this, and, and every single time it's very cringy. But one of the ones that got a lot of circulation, there was a comment on there by some white lady saying, I bet the Chinese are drooling watching this. Mm, okay. I was like, what? In a completely unrelated issue, you want to just drag in Asians or China in some way to deflect or to to direct any kind of anger or outrage towards that instead of towards white supremacy. And it's just a pattern. I see, I see this a lot. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, then the deflection here, um, when I looked at the map of fatalities in the 92 riots, we completely miss that the corridor that was protected by law enforcement and the National Guard, we'll just call them the army because that's exactly what it is, uh, the border between um, Koreatown and the wealthy, the wealthy areas like Bel Air, Beverly Hills, um, Hollywood, places like that three times as many fatalities there as in Koreatown, all inflicted by law enforcement or the National Guard. But that doesn't exist in the narrative that remains about the 92 riots. People were shot in the street outside Beverly Hills is basically the story there. And that's been allowed to completely fall to the wayside. It's held at arm's length. 
Uh, and this is, again, the lens that uh, a white supremacist media, a controlled media will bring to anything. It's always held at arm's length. It was a race conflict that bubbled up and flared out, but in the poor parts of town. We're talking South Central, whatever weird things going on in Koreatown. It happened over there. But you look at the map of fatalities, about 15 people were killed on the border of Beverly Hills and Hollywood. Were they black people? Yes, black and brown. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so this is the giant hole that I see in this perception. I see a lot of people, well-meaning people, and I feel a lot of them are very young uh, and may have grown up far away from, from 92. When you invoke 92 to lecture people about whatever's go- whatever you think is it, the parallel is right now, you owe it to yourself to read this, to know this history, because unknowingly they have absorbed quite a bit of the narrative crafting of 92. And that lens creates a silencing on important perspectives now that needs to be undone immediately. Yeah, well said. Um, You know, I just go back to that statement of uh, you don't get to pretend like the murder of Latasha Harlins didn't happen. Who's pretending that? Yeah. I mean, look at all this other stuff that the mainstream narrative, look at all the other stuff that they're pretending is not didn't happen either. You know, they're they're cherry picking specific events to construct the narrative that the white media wants, which is Asians versus black people. And it's playing completely playing into that. And it's it's not okay if we if we as, you know, Asian Americans and advocating for the civil rights battle for abolition, you know, and we're going to be on the right side of this struggle we owe it to ourselves to know what the hell we're talking about, especially if we're invoking historical events like that. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of these call-outs, uh, there's almost there's a tone of demanding penance, right? I think this is a very liberal frame of discussing um, matters of injustice, uh, especially when issues like like anti-blackness among Asians is invoked. We see play out now, like you. There's a story of an Asian storefront that got looted or something, and somebody will. Well, we need to reflect uh, on anti-blackness, and there's an element of like, well, does that does that mean that they had it coming? Is it, are we supposed to see this as like paying back something, like a, paying for some crime that we ourselves have committed here? Well, I think that is the frame that um, the law enforcement or like the government at that time thought of it as is like, oh, we're letting the black people take reparations from Koreatown. Like I've literally heard it said like that. Oh, my God. Okay, then we have a perfect test case. Then we have 92 to go back on. Like I said, almost $600 billion of damage to Koreans, right? Have we paid our tab? A, and B, nothing material has changed as a result of this, right? Which kind of tells me that framing does not work because that did not solve anything. Fine, six, fine. the Koreans took on $600 billion of property damage and a complete leveling of accumulated wealth. Okay, what did that fix? There's many books that have been written on this, right? The post-riots actions of the Korean community. They really, you know, collectively said, like, we need to do better. You know, we, we can't let this uh, happen again. 
Korean um, organizations, community organizations in LA, you know, made efforts to try to improve their relationship with the Black community. Like the Korean Youth and Community Center um, had a interracial recreational program where Korean and Black teenagers would go fishing together and watch basketball together. The Korean community leaders in LA um, arranged for Black community leaders to go visit Korea. They invited um, not only community leaders, but also um, high school and college kids, like Black high school and college kids uh, got invited to go visit Korea as a way to try to like bridge this big cultural gap that existed between the communities. I don't think anybody talks about that. Was there a response from Korea? Um, I mean, solidarity with the diaspora. Mm-hmm. I don't know too much about that. I know the story was uh, our brothers and sisters in Los Angeles are suffering enormous loss. I think there was a lot of money, like fundraisers, you know, aid raised in Korea sent out to affected business owners, kind of, you know, the GoFundMes of 92, basically. <laughs> yeah. As far as analysis of like of race, I don't think it, it quite got to that point where there was a critical race reckoning in Korea. But again, like that's because it's Korea. It's an, it's America. It's not Korea. Mm-hmm. And we're we're about a generation and a half out from ninety two now. So the dynamics have definitely changed. And I see in one, I mean, so people type running their mouths, but nothing changed since ninety two. Bullshit. Um, I look at what happened, how these protests now played out in '92. Where did the looting happen? Beverly Hills, Santa Monica, Venice, the rich places, big corporations. Fuck yeah! Fuck yeah. Um, and that kind of that kind of coordination, that that kind of social awareness, and none of this is like coordinated from the. There is no like central leadership, right? No one was like, "All right, this coalition, we will now go, we will now go riot in Beverly Hills," right? This is a, this this has to be some understanding, you know, a bone deep understanding of where the real problems lie. This time, we were able to pinpoint exactly where the problem is. Yeah, and this time there's so much Asian solidarity on the ground too. Like people in Chinatown have gotten together and joined the protests in San Francisco, in New York, like all the big enclaves are out there. Yeah, um, I mean, from what I was hearing from people who I know in the community this time, I mean, there was there was a lot of hysteria over Roof Koreans 2.0 this time in Korea town, but some of the pictures that are circulating, like you should notice what's going on in the background. They're actually helping patrol South Central. Mm-hmm. There is a lot more solidarity going on. This is again, you know, a generation out, children of these business owners, children of these affected customers who grew up together. And so when so when people try to draw analogies carelessly to the protests that go on that that we're seeing right now to then like they're not seeing a lot of these nuances that that are pretty major in my opinion as someone who's been living in Los Angeles and hopes to think that she has has some awareness of what's going on it means a lot to me that collectively this time we were like you know what we're going to go fuck Gucci up this time yeah you know what I see is actually there's more solidarity among interracial solidarity. There's less uh, class solidarity. Or I mean, mm-hmm. I just feel like there's more in common with the working class Asian Latino 
black communities in the same areas than there are with like the Asian liberals. Yeah, absolutely. It's cloaked in the language of building solidarity, but if you take it at face value, it actually is rather separatist. If you take it at face value, this exhortation to distance yourself, like under the fear of not centering, like we don't want to take up space, we don't want to center ourselves, um, so we are put places, you know, at the back, like we're on the, we're supposed to just shut up, right, and be present because this isn't our fight. Guess the fuck what it is our fight. It is. I don't care if it's. Em- I think it's embarrassing to a lot of posh Asians to have to confront this fact. But no, guess what? This is. This is absolutely our fight. Like it's not a matter of just a moral solidarity. This is. We should be able to feel this bone deep. It's their. It's their painting of this as a as solely a race, um, and and a completely ignoring class that doesn't have visibility into the interconnectedness of the working class communities and how we do depend on each other. We have so much more interaction in, you know, these working class uh, communities than um, elite uh, liberals or upper middle class who are very insulated within mostly white spaces. And so I think that that's also part of the reason why when they speak about these things from a white centric lens, it really only serves that kind of divide and conquer machination of, of white supremacy. And I think, and I think this, uh, the, soli- the solidarity has a particular valence because we're coming together as people who were pitted against each other. If it weren't for redlining, for the systematic gutting, the hollowing out of black wealth and the ability for black people to accumulate wealth, build their own businesses, own their properties, right? There wouldn't have been this vacuum that Asian shop owners were funneled into consciously as a conscious mechanism, as a buffer in the city planning documents of that time. They were glad to have low cost Korean shop owners or Asian shop owners in general in these areas so that uh, there wouldn't be pressure on white owned grocery chains to operate in those areas. I mean, Koreatown exists like right at the border that divides uh, like South Central, which is primarily black and brown, I think in those days, it more recently turned uh, more brown, but historically has been a black and white working class part of LA, the northern section, which is the cities that we all know, because that's Hollywood, Bel Air, Beverly Hills, uh, those areas. If it weren't for those policies, this social, this, this, uh, this powder keg wouldn't have been placed right where it is. And so we're coming together to say, we actually, we're, we're flip sides of this. (laughs) nobody wanted to be in this situation. And that's what I think the uh, check your Asian privilege discourse gets so shamefully wrong. I'm not the only way it gets it wrong. It almost sets it up like Asians came here explicitly to exploit black and working class communities. Like, are you kidding me? That's a little limited in imagination. Imagine what we wanted to do was take white people's money. <laughs> we wanted a place in the community is what we wanted. Right. We wanted to start our, our life here. We left everything to start a life here. We didn't all come as, you know, on a work visa, like some, some did, but we didn't all come on a work visa. We, a lot of us came with almost nothing. And what little we had, we poured into trying to gain some kind of a foothold and build a life in the community. I just think that a lot, a lot of these uh, liberals, they, they miss that entirely. Because we're we're invisible to them, 
I have a little bit of experience with that kind of experience during my lifetime, kind of this upward mobility where I was that poor immigrant who lived in a trailer home. Um, And then I went from that to living in a fairly uh, middle-class suburban neighborhood in a gated community. So I am a class jumper, um, you know, and I feel like I've experienced being poor, like extremely poor, and then suddenly being not poor and seeing the difference that having that sudden class privilege makes, it definitely impacts your mindset and your worldview. Um, You become surrounded by a whole set of different people and you start looking at things through their lens. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat as you and I can confirm that 100%. Yeah, it's a lifelong effort to constantly remember the the experiences of the the working class. I mean, I I can't forget, you know, like that kind of uh, financial insecurity, like that has been drilled into me for life. <laughs> like I'm never not I'm never going to understand just that middle class or upper class mentality period i just feel like their issues are so fucking it's just all pettiness and i'm just like you're an idiot that you're just like so anxious about you know what i i was seeing this guy who he would complain every Christmas because his parents got him too many <laughs> presents and that put pressure on oh him. God. Yeah, I mean you see you see the different mindset with people who they never experienced poverty. They never experienced economic hardship. And you see that people who have never experienced that have a very different way of looking at the world than people I guess people like us, you know, um, I guess when you're a class jumper and you're, you suddenly find yourself surrounded by those people, it kind of creates a little bit of a rift between um, you and, and those people on some level because they, they won't understand your experiences. And whenever you're talking about past experiences, they can only understand it from kind of a, a service level or, or an academic level. They have nothing personal in their lives to relate that to. So, the, you know, you'll talk about your hardship and economic and racial tensions, and then they'll, they'll compare it to some episode uh, of Bojack Horseman or something. They'll say, oh, yeah, uh, they'll compare it to um, a book they read or, you know, an episode of some show that they've seen because they have nothing personal in their lives to compare that kind of hardship to. It's dehumanizing. And I'll speak as someone who has uh, lived as the upper middle class. Yeah, our problems are bullshit. Um, because it's not it's not rooted in anything. The entire upper middle class and petty bourgeoisie, like the lower tiers of the upper class, their entire standing depends on being the enforcers for the rich, the 1%. That's the basis for legitimacy. And they're kept in line by the fear that they're going to become part of the lower 90%. Like, that's it. That's literally it. All this neuroticism, all of this hand-wringing is based on the fear of being poor or worse, being seen as poor. So yeah, these problems are bullshit. Here's where it gets dehumanizing. It's when you're able to sacrifice someone else on behalf of your own comfort. 
my anger at wealthy, well-educated Asians weighing in on working class Asians whose livelihoods were destroyed uh, with some blithe statement about how, oh, we need to check our anti-blackness. You know, that's our job in this. We have to just be allies in this. It's okay. Let's have them at your door. Let's try that. You are not able to picture them coming for you, which is why you are able to throw them under the bus so easily. This tells me a lot about how you see those people. So don't give me any bullshit. You are not seeing them as, as human as yourself. You are not able to see their concerns as having the same legitimacy as yours. You would be upset if they came for yours. And honestly, if you're talking, if you're trying to walk the walk in terms of allyship and we have to set what we have to quote sacrifice or give up on behalf of the common good, they should be going after you. You probably have more in your bank account. Your house probably has way better stuff than some mom and pop convenience store. They should be coming after you. You should be giving out your address for them to come to. Honestly, if you're actually ready to be in solidarity with the cause, the way you're talking, the way you expect other people to sacrifice their livelihoods with less to fall back on than you do. Yeah. And, you know, those are the same people who will always call on racial solidarity when they want to, like, get into a get on a Hollywood movie or something like that. It's just so, yeah. My self-loathing is not from being Asian. It's just from knowing too many upper middle class people. That's it. I mean, and it's so it's so easy to do because it gets it wins you some easy clout. And again, it's nominally speaking to Asians, but your real audience isn't Asian people. You're tr- you're showing off for you're you're showing off for your woke audience. White audience. The only thing that check your anti-blackness Asian discourse does is it's so their white friends, their white liberal friends can look at that and feel less guilt, less white guilt. They can point to their Asian friends and be like, those guys are worse. Or we're not the only ones. Look, they're bad too. One of the most vocal accounts uh, that has made several posts about focusing specifically on Asian anti-Blackness, like they're just stuck on that. And every single post they make is about, or it seems like every other post they make is about that. And then I looked at their followers. This is somebody who has like thousands of followers. Okay. I'm not going to name names, but I looked through their followers and it was all, it's all white and Asian people. That's their base. That's the audience that they're talking to. There's like, I counted maybe like five black people. It's not reaching, you know, the, the people who you're, you know, purporting to support. It's not reaching that, that audience. It's reaching white guilt, white liberals, um, and their assimilationist Asian Americans. Yeah. I hope people come away with this with a little bit more context for this historical moment. Uh, What's going on now? First of all, I don't buy the comparison. I think it's a dangerous comparison to make. What's happening now is so much less violent and so much less, um, it's not the same kind of, it's not the same. So trying to compare it to the situation now is almost to fear monger and distort the protests are so well organized and so disciplined, like indivi- everyone is so disciplined and conscientious that nobody's even getting COVID. Yeah. Most people are wearing masks to the protests. They're distributing hand sanitizer, you know, water, snacks, masks. Like it's much better than what the government is giving. 
And we're living in the, you know, the, the age of Twitter. So it's hyper connected. There's up to the second updates and it's a, it's a multifaceted coalition. Um, yeah. And, you know, at this point, there's been more black men lynched, just fucking hanging from trees than there were people killed in Koreatown in 92. Yeah, the scale is not even the same. Yeah. So especially for Asians who actually want to walk the walk in understanding and building solidarity, a lot of this discourse is actually counter, it's counterproductive. And I want to believe that a lot of people are, are speaking out in good faith. It's just uninformed. Uh, for people who want to talk about the damage incurred to Asian business owners and shut that down, talking about checking anti-Blackness or implying that Asians have uh, some kind of uh, penance, uh, some kind of tab to pay back. Look, we tried that in 92. We're talking billions upon billions of property gone up in smoke or lost to looting. We've tried that and it did nothing systemic. So even as a solution, that doesn't work. It behooves you to advocate this time for something that actually will work. And this is nothing, this is out of the hands of any individual Asian person. This is systemic. This goes back to just history fighting against redlining, advocating for systemic change that brings capital, that brings property back into black hands. If that's, that is the cause that we are, that we need to be fighting for, we need to be fighting for justice, for abolition of the police state, that all of these communities, and we're bringing our receipts. I don't, uh, I don't see it as trying to steal space or centering ourselves. I see this as us contributing to this mass class action lawsuit we're filing. Yeah. Uh, we're saying we we got our shit too. Trust me, this shit is not working for anybody. And, and this privilege discourse, Teen goes into this quite a bit. So people who are still with us at this one, check those episodes out too, um, where he goes into into unpacking this some more. And I think we need to dig into this, keep digging into this privilege discourse where he says, oh, we benefit from privilege because we're not shot in the street like black people that's extremely limited and we're seeing the limits of this right now it's not a privilege to not be shot in the street it's a right <laughs> i mean you hear white people talking about you know like white comedians talking about uh the right to say the n-word on stage as a fundamental human right but not getting shot on the street is a privilege like what the fuck yeah if you want to talk about it as privilege, you're actually saying how you need to be absent from this conversation. That's exactly what it's saying. It's saying that you actually have no place in this. You are somehow outside of this. You are not. It's a call to inaction is what it is. Yeah. yeah I, yes. I, I don't, I think it's absolutely at this point useless to focus and fixate on privilege rather than oppression, the systematic oppression done by the government historically um, against uh, minority communities and especially against African descendants, you know, the uh, black people for centuries, this is the longest lasting crime um, that has not been resolved. And that's why this, this is the center of the conflict. Like let's focus on that. The, you know, the oppression of the white supremacist system against you know, these communities that we should all be allied together to confront and to, to overturn. That's alliance. That's solidarity. Like, I don't think anybody at this point needs to hear about your privilege, your quote unquote privilege. Yeah. Nobody in your Yale newsletter needs to hear about it either. It's not reaching anybody that needs to hear it, except whoever you're trying to impress on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> 
in this social moment, you are you are done. Uh, that discourse is done. <laughs> it's it's almost a humble brag. Like, look how many ponies I had when I was a kid. Like, shut the fuck up. Since we've been referencing this uh, throughout our conversation, so um, so there's a documentary. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's called LA ninety two. I think it's produced by National Geographic. I believe yeah. um, it's a very well done. Um, it's a very well done documentary. Uh, I've seen others that have left out complete segments of this of uh, of the contributing factors and the fallout of the riots. This one I felt uh, did justice to the lead up to the riots, did justice to the historical context, did a great job laying out what actually happened during those five days, and then the aftermath as well. Uh, I really appreciated, especially at the end. This is a story that never reaches uh, public consciousness, but post-riots, uh, I mean, I actually, I teared up a little because, you know, the, Diana, do you remember the scene at the very end where they show, like, the big, like, rally that a bunch of Koreans mm-hmm. were I was there. I don't have any memory of it, but I have a picture of my parents taking me to Oh, that wow. Yeah. Um, it's a, it was a big peace rally. A lot of Koreans from across Los Angeles, I think a lot of people traveled in to peacefully protest and, and help rehabilitate. So a lot of people were out on like cleaning crews to clean up the damage, repairs. A lot of new connections were made that day and in the coalitions that came in the years after. So I'm really glad that they highlighted uh, that part too. It wasn't just, and then LA burned in 92, the end. I feel like they did give credit do a lot of justice to the human actual people who who lived through it and were there to rebuild it after. Second one is uh, a more Korean-centric uh, document. I'm not sure where it's playing. Uh, Saigu? They're, they're actually both on YouTube, so we can just post links. Okay. Like, you don't need a Netflix okay, account yeah. or anything. That's a more speci- that's a that's a documentary more specific to the Korean experience during those riots. I've seen some criticism that it's uh, that it favors you know Korean biases in this, but I mean it's part of it's part of the story. So I would hope that people watch it with the yeah. this is one segment of a much bigger story. I think LA ninety two did a great job unpacking the different uh, the big elements uh, of the situation and they did a fair job. Saigu would be specific to the Korean and Korean American experience within that and the perspective, uh, the perspective that Koreans brought to uh, brought into the riots. I feel like I'm still learning and I'm still gathering, you know, more perspectives on this because there were just so many factors. I would like to learn more about, you know, black American perspectives on the event outside of just the one dimensional Koreans are racist, period. There's a part in LA 92 where um, they interview somebody after the verdict, uh, where the store owner didn't get any prison time. And the person being interviewed, um, the Black person was saying, like, this isn't an injustice because of this one woman. It's an injustice because the white core system allows this to happen. So, like, everybody is aware, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. That's a really good point. This narrative by fo- hyper focusing on, uh, say, Asian Black tensions here, it's dehumanizing in a way because it implies that neither of us really fucking know what's going on. And the perspective is always, well, there has to be some white person, some unbiased bystander here uh, who was able to bring context and history and an understanding to the situation. No, it was on the ground understanding. We all knew where the problems were. 
the thing about the 92 riots is the anger was so intense. Uh, the injustices were so mind-blowing. It's It was so blatant, right? The officers walking free, Sun Jadu walking free. Uh, for shit, we could see with our own eyes. Yeah, I, I saw some of the footage and like I almost threw up. That's how horrifying Rodney King's injuries were. And they did an interview with him and he said that the police, when they held that taser to his stomach, they were playing with him. They were like testing out this new toy that they had. Oh my God. You know where else I've heard that shit being said is in the fucking rape of Nanking. Yep. Same exact type of violence, like racist violence and fascist violence that we have to, to ally against. That's the bottom line for me. Me too. All right. That was another episode of Escape from Plan A. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever there's podcasts, and consider donating to our Patreon. Have a good night. Bye. Bye.